Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. One of the trailers I wanted to talk about is not actually a, um, it's not a movie trailer. So I figure I want to talk to you about it now. Can we do that? Sure. Is it a trailer for? It's a trailer for Daredevil. Oh, the little TV, the 15 second thing? No. What? No, I only I only saw the teaser, the trailer teaser. Oh, you saw a teaser for the trailer of the teaser. Yeah, trailer. the trailer for the trailer, right? Yeah, no, yeah, the, 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 the trailer's second. out. The the trailer. Uh-huh. So you haven't even seen the trailer yet, but I it's haven't. it's uh, it's for the Netflix series Daredevil. Right. I don't know how we should treat these trailers. They're like hybrid, you know, trailers. What's well, a TV trailer? But it's not really even on TV. It's more like a well, thir- thirteen-hour film spread split up into episodes on netflix yeah i guess yeah that's what it is so how was what it? did you think of it? oh you haven't seen it i haven't I, seen it i loved you it you didn't tell me Holy, to watch it well i thought you just would <laughs> i know uh, i really I really liked it i really liked it you know what i think i like the best i haven't i can't quite get a sense of the, the uniform is always it's always dark i don't know if this is like oh it's his first episode uniform and he eventually gets the uniform but y- you know how daredevil his uniform the devil head actually has eyes uh, right it, there's no eyes there's it's no just... eyes <laughs> that is i don't know why i started speaking <laughs> yeah, like i'm a was, russian russian grandmother <laughs> there's no eyes andy <laughs> eat your beets uh it's it's uh there's no eyes in it and i think that's really great because you know blind yeah right why why would he do that Never made that much sense uh yeah yeah and uh so anyway it looks i i think it looks really really good um is it gonna be better than ben affleck's version (laughs) (laughs) oh i just had to bring that one up sorry yeah it will it will. I, I'm. It, it's. Uh, it definitely looks better than, uh, than Daredevil, uh, Ben Affleck's version. It looks. Uh, it's really gritty. It looks like he gets beaten up. So you know, they. Mm. It, it looks like they. At least in the in the uh, trailer, they're really showcasing him, kind of, uh, figuring out who he is. Uh, but mostly it's just super, super dark. And I think that's one of the the, the most interesting things about what Netflix can do uh, that, that you don't get on, you know, for example, uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. or yeah. uh, Agent Carter, um, which I think are both fine shows. I really, particularly Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. this season is is uh, quite good. And uh, I've enjoyed Agent Carter. I like the the throwback of the uh, of that era of sort of Captain America lore and early Stark. I think it's really nice, um, but man, Netflix can really go cinematic, and it looks like they they're really putting their money, um, putting some money behind this show because it 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 looks it has a great look to it, and I'm very excited um, about what well, they're bringing to it. And maybe what some of these stories need is not just a two hour 
origin story yeah. in a theater, but maybe they actually need, kind of like a comic book, you've got this much longer story that kind of gives a better arc to the character and gives a better sense of their origin, of their character, of their backstory that is actually going to help make it a better story. I think so, too. I, I really do. And I, I'm, I think the thing I'm most excited about with this particular iteration of Daredevil is that we are going to see him um, in... Um, uh, we're going to see how a series handles a tentpole Marvel property, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's not we we don't get the agents of Shield that are the you know we you know sort of second string. We've never really heard of you uh, except for Agent Coulson, obviously. But um, you know we don't get these sort of second string characters. Uh, yeah, we get we get Daredevil. We get one of the big ones uh, in a series, and I'm really excited to see how they flesh that out. So, um, I think that looks great. Well, I hope it succeeds because I mean, it, it certainly could open the doors for a lot of other uh, different comic book properties that may need a home like this in order to succeed. I think so too, and you know we're already seeing. I, you know, I, I as a nerd, I really love all of the comic book properties that are that are being sort of talked about right now, and and um, you know I've been really enjoying the Flash, uh, which is a has been sort of a spinoff of Arrow uh, on the DC side, and uh, apparently uh, David Ramsey, who plays uh, John Diggle on Arrow, is is um, looking at taking up. Uh, uh, looks like he's in talks to take up Green Lantern. Um, so that could be another interesting, um, I don't know if that's going to be a spinoff or if that's for, um, uh, if that's for, for the film, uh, but he's a great character on Arrow. And so it's, I, I just love as a, you know, as a nerd that I love all of this, um, all of this superhero stuff taken, uh, taken on uh, TV and screen. Taking, taking flight. Taking flight. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Taking shape. Uh, uh, as it were, Green Green Lantern. Right. Yeah, you, you get you get me. You I know, get you because of the yes. power. Big ring. big green you things. Get the thing. Hammer. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't a big fan of Green Lantern, were you? <laughs> the movie. No, the character. Were you a Green Lantern kid? <laughs> I I that was one I never even uh, other than uh, Justice League of America, the the cartoon show. I knew nothing about Green Lantern, so. Mm-hmm. As far as my world was concerned, he was always Green Lantern and was never a, a person <laughs> outside of that. <laughs> well, he was uh, he was very cool. Yes, some of us are, you know, bigger fans. Show than our I. allegiance. Yes, yeah. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? everybody welcome it's the next reel and i'm pete wright and that there is andy nelson yo and we spoil movies and tonight on the show we've got another listener's choice with jean-pierre Jeunet's 1991 deliciously black comedy delicatessen but mm-hmm. before we get i <laughs> did your stomach just growl <laughs> it sure i did. heard it <laughs> Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're an Instagramalama ding dong, just like the hoods at Rydell High, you might want to join us at Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play the Instagram hashtag pony prize, hashtag I knew I could fit grease in this bit, hashtag Standy versus the people, hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how'd we do against our flock of foes this week? That needs to be uh, your new thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
What movie can I fit in this week? <laughs> right? Instagram-a-lam-a-ding-dong. Come on. That's genius. You're a genius. I look forward to what you come up with next week. <laughs> and the ad we do against the flock of foes this week. Oh, the flock of foes? <laughs> They were. It was a strong turnout. It was a strong turnout. We had some some good uh, good options thrown out there as potential guesses this week, but um, it took uh, it took three images again. Uh, just three. Just images. three. Yeah, that uh, for Alexander C. Curran again to pop in and nail it with Sergeant York. Oh man. I know. I know. So he uh, yeah, he's he pulled it out of. Some secret bag he's got. <laughs> I was wondering where you were gonna go. Where, what, what, where does Alexander C. Kern pull things from? <laughs> it's his secret bag of black and white still images. <laughs> two weeks for Alexander C. Curran that he's nailed it now. That and uh, the last two weeks now he's been entered into the Pony Prize drawing for 2015. Outstanding. And with that, Andrew, let's do trailers. <laughs> My trailer falls into our collection of uh, intriguing remakes that still probably don't need to be remade. Uh, even so, producers uh, Sam, producer uh, Sam Raimi and director Gil Keenan bring us a reboot of Poltergeist this year. The film that is singularly responsible for a generational fear of clowns. This development was built on a cemetery. This isn't just a few pissed off spirits we're dealing with. It's a poltergeist. We just want our daughter back. From the looks of it, Keenan's poltergeist stays reasonably true to the original. Uh, where it looks updated comes in the scares. The original is less horror and more thriller. And the balance appears to be flipped toward the intense in this version, uh, I think. Gil Keenan doesn't have much to his credit. Monster House in 2006 is a clever kid's haunt that is super popular around my place every Halloween. And City of Ember, I've never seen 2008. Um, So I can't comment on that. I do love Poltergeist, and this new version looks solid, even though it's already evident from the trailer that they've broken a fundamental element of the film. Her name is Carol Ann, dummies. (laughs) <laughs> Poltergeist opens July 24th, 2015. You're excited about it. You know, I I am excited. I I uh am a huge fan of the original Poltergeist. It's I, like you, I feel like do they really need to be going back and remaking all of these uh classics from our youth? I just I don't think they do, but at the same time they're doing it. I'm just going to kind of go with it and, you know, I'll, I'll be excited about it. I mean, I do agree with you. Why are they changing the names? There's no logic to it. it. Just, just, you know, if you're telling the same story, then just, you know, tell the same story with the same names and everything. It's an but, iconic name. Yeah. Carol Ann. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Go into the light, Carol Ann. I mean, all of that sort of stuff is just, uh, it's, it's important. And what is it? Madison? Maddie. Yeah. 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 It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that, but, I still am excited about it. It, uh, I think you're right. They get everything else right that's going on in the uh, in the trailer. It just looks creepy. The the clown stuff is terrifying. I think there was a quick shot of the tree mm-hmm. and uh, and the uh, rope in the closet. The rope in the closet, all of that sort of stuff. I, I feel like uh, the the original one really kind of um, was using all of the latest and greatest technology of the time to make to make it as scary as possible. And 
as long as I think they're doing the same thing now using today's modern technology to make it as, as scary as possible, then, you know, I, I think there's a good, a good chance it's going to work. I, I don't know how they're going to uh, fill the shoes, the giant shoes of the diminutive Zelda Rubenstein right. uh, in this version. I don't know how they're going to do it, um, uh, but, uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see him try. And, you know, I didn't even mention this is Sam Rockwell um, playing uh, the Craig T. Nelson role. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, we've talked a lot about Sam Rockwell on the show. I love Sam Rockwell. I'm excited to see him on screen. Um, so... Yeah, he generally, I think, is somebody I'm always excited for. So, yeah, I've got, I've got, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. And uh, you know, I really enjoyed the Evil Dead remake that uh, uh, Sam Raimi was kind of producing that came out recently. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that this one can be something else that I enjoy. Me too. All right, what's yours? Mine is a new trailer opening up uh, soon called Cut Bank, which uh, it's a strange little name. Uh, it's opening limited in April. I don't know how big it's going to get, but it's a it's kind of an interesting thriller. It starts off with a you know a guy and his girlfriend just filming out in a I don't know field of uh, sunflowers or something, and all of a sudden they see the mail truck driving by and they see someone come up and kill the mailman and uh, and and take him away and uh, and they happened to get this whole thing on film as they were hiding in the flowers. They report it. And it turns into this this uh, this you know big uh, you know cop case trying to figure out what happened where did the where did this person take the mailman um, all of this sort of stuff it looks like from the trailer that it turns into something where this guy filming was actually in on it with the mailman to try to get this uh, um, the reward for reporting a crime and uh, and it looks like it's going to start backfiring it looks like a really interesting crime thriller in a very kind of noirish vein. My name's Cassandra Steely, and I'd like to show you my town full of cheer and want and kindness. Well, Derby, ain't you become ever so handsome? What can I do you for? Keep waiting on a parcel. Here, we're surrounded by miles and miles Wayne Heard? of wheat and canola fields. They murdered the mailman. Got uh, Liam Hemsworth in it, uh, Teresa Palmer, Billy Bob Thornton, John Malkovich, Michael Stuhlbarg, Bruce Dern, Oliver Platt. It's got a, a great, great cast, and uh, it just looks like a really interesting modern kind of neo noir. Matt uh, Shackman is directing it. I'm not very familiar with him. It looks like though he's uh, been behind a lot of TV, like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Revenge, The Good Wife. And um, some of Fargo, actually. So it seems like somebody who, you know, he's got a lot of comedy in there, but uh, may have a good uh, a good read on on some of this kind of this darker stuff. So uh, it looks pretty good to me. I'm excited for it. I, you know, seeing the when the trailer opened, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. meh. Yeah, right. But uh, my goodness, this has an awesome cast, and I, uh, I think it looks just really thrilling. I sort of feel like the trailer gives away a rather key point or plot point that I think they might, might better have pocketed. Uh, Is that the, the one, the, the reveal that he's in on it with the, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Why, 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 for I, no, why I, do you do things like that? I agree. I agree. Why, why reveal that 
seemingly huge and important twist yeah, so in, we'll see. Uh, in the trailer. So I'm hoping that it's one of those stories that is going to have another twist at some point that kind of, you know, it, it better because that that's yeah. one that would have been really easy to, <laughs> to not include exactly uh, in the exactly. trailer. That seems sort of sloppy. What do you think it's like, um, let's say Thanksgiving at the Hemsworth house? <laughs> I did. I did not know. I don't. They actually wouldn't have Thanksgiving in the Hemsworth house. Oh, I guess they that's live in true. Australia. They live in Australia. <laughs> what do you think it's like? Uh, I don't know. What's a big holiday in Australia? I am so maybe Christmas. At this. Christmas. Let's go with Christmas. What do you think Christmas is like at the Hemsworth house? That I did not know that they were that these were like Hollywood brothers. I don't think I've ever made the connection that Luke Hemsworth and Chris Hemsworth are Liam Hemsworth's brothers. Yeah, they are all bros. And, uh, you know, I bet, uh, I would think that they probably all give Chris uh, Thor action figures. <laughs> sure. Oh, that'd be the best. Oh, yes. Fun times. And uh, then there's Mockingjay would... toys that they can they can give out and everything, right? This is, that's awesome. I would, I would love to be one of the Hemsworth brothers just on Christmas Day. <laughs> just to see. <laughs> yeah. Mom and dad must get lots of great gifts. Ugh. Uh, all right. When did you say when yours comes out? It comes out in April. It's a limited release. It doesn't have much of uh, much information yet. April third, limited is all I see for now. All right. Cut bank. There we go. Cut bank. Andy. Yes. This is a job for the Australian. post-apocalyptic surrealist black comedy that's a whole genre unto itself delicatessen 1991 from uh director jean-pierre genet and mark caro before we jump into the film this film of course comes as our listener's choice and uh to get us started we actually brought the winner of our listener's choice uh onto the show and so we should hear a little bit from the uh, the kindly, lovely, and talented Cameron Ryan right now. We are welcoming to our show uh, a listener and uh, the the Pony Prize winner from 2014, uh, Cameron Ryan, who, uh, you know, I think that she broke a record with the, uh, the wins for the Pony Prize. I think she's had 14 wins, and so that was uh, a... I would oh, wow, say, really? that much. Yeah, yeah. Cer- certainly beneficial in uh, in uh, scoring that win last year. So uh, kudos to you. Congratulations. As we learned, you're really good at architecture, architectural images from <laughs> so movies. What is up with that? Every single picture of a house or a building, you nailed it. Honestly, it's, it's, I'm an idiot savant. That's basically what it comes down to. Um, I have no idea. Candy. Literally, you can ask me. Uh, you know, five minutes before I, I get home to go and stop off and get milk. Uh, can't remember that, but somehow <laughs> you flash a house. And <laughs> From a 25-year-old movie. Exactly. You flash a house and all of a sudden it's like, you know, all systems go and, you know, I, I become Rain Man. So I, I don't even know what happened. <laughs> I didn't even know that that was that many. 
Yeah. Um, I actually had uh, come on to the, um, I got Instagram kind of on the later side, actually, last year. And I think it was right after you guys had done Old Boy, which is one of my favorite movies. Oh, okay. I was kind of bummed that I actually didn't. I, 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 I'm kind of bummed I didn't actually join earlier. But, um, but anywho, uh, that's, that's around the time when I joined Instagram and uh, started playing for the Pony Prize. And I get competitive about weird things. So I assume you've re- started to receive a, a lot of the oh, movie trash have, that I we've been sending through. my swag. I have received, yeah, I have received it. Uh, and it's actually been uh, interesting, um, the things that I've actually been getting. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, I did actually get the, um, the film board, uh, the film foundation letter, obviously, stating... Uh, the donation made in my name, and also the two DVDs, uh, The River and uh, Senso, which I'm yet to actually watch, but I hear that we have snow coming my way, so um, uh. I actually should be able to bunker down and, and watch those. Uh, Chad Stoops sent a uh, DVD with a screen test of him as Joker, and then uh, David <laughs> Boyle, Surrogate Valentine. Yes. Right, right. DVD, and of course. Uh, I was not expecting uh, the action figures, <laughs> the Goonie Sloth. Excellent. And God. <laughs> Which, of course, I've been told by my guy friends that I shouldn't remove them from the packaging. No, that's critical. Uh, so, yes. Uh, so they're still in their packaging. Um, Tommy uh, Handsome. What did Tommy Handsome send you? Tommy Handsome. So uh, with every DVD, it was like a, it was like a, like a little, like a little, present uh in itself only because uh he left these fun notes uh with uh you know just tommy handsome musings uh fun film board fact number one peter wright was the first person to coin the phrase that's so raven love (laughs) tommy handsome (laughs) i was so robbed disney (laughs) i I know fun film board fact number two Steve Sarmento invented the ampersand and initially wanted to name it either the saucy S or the fancy end. Love, Tommy Handsome. I will say both of those are better than ampersand. They're uh, true. Yes, they actually are. One of my favorites, actually. Uh, fun film board fact number three. Andy Nelson didn't actually donate a kidney to a sick friend. Instead, he had it stuffed and it sits on his desk. He talks to it at night. <laughs> Weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> love Tommy Handsome. So, I'm actually gonna. I'm thinking about actually uh, framing that one. It's it's awesome. It's so that awesome, is, especially be... given the movie that we're talking about. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Fun film board fact number four: Despite his low speaking voice, Mike Evans is actually a nine year old Chinese girl. Love Tommy <laughs> Handsome. Oh. Mm-hmm. And the last one: Fun film board fact number five. Chad Stoops and renowned actress CCH Pounder have never been in the same room at the same time. Many have speculated that they are, in fact, the same person. Love, Tommy Handsome. <laughs> I love that nice. he signs them love, Tommy Handsome at the end of every <laughs> single one. Just in case I had amnesia right. and just, you know, didn't know who these were from. <laughs> Dude is adorable. That way I can't pass them off off my own musings, of course. <laughs> We've been very excited to talk about this film and so glad that you got it on our list. Why was this film important to you? Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, relationship with Delicatessen? 
Uh, let's see, I, I was actually in high school and I was working at a video store back when you actually had video stores. Uh, part of my duties were to, um, you know, when it was slow to uh, to actually go through and, you know, dust the shelves and stuff like that, uh, you know, organize um, the, the movies to make sure that they're with the covers or with the D, with the VHS back in the, in the day or the DVDs. Um, and I noticed that this one kept sitting on the shelf in a foreign, uh, you know, foreign film section, and it, it just didn't get didn't get taken out a lot. Um, and the cover itself actually kind of, you know, drew me in. I I watched it, and it was actually the first one that I actually had um, fallen in love with, uh, like a like a, a foreign film, um, and that kind of got me into kind of like the rabbit hole of 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 foreign film. Um, but uh, I I liked the. The, the, the kind of like the the mix of you know possible danger with the whimsy uh the color palette um and uh and it was just uh it, I, I don't know there was something that just stuck with me um I, long after i had watched it i had stayed and I, I needed to like you know and i kept thinking about it and that was that was one of those things where it was like my the first love nice oh, that, that's so sweet that's so, that's so sweet. It's like nerd sentimentalism. That really is nerd sentiment. <laughs> Delicatessen is is one of those funny uh, funny films. It really is. It's a, it is a uh, a, a quintessential uh, black comedy. Uh, sort of defines it, it, it. It's one of those that becomes a data point to continue def- to define the genre. Um, but the other thing that I think is so interesting about it is you, you talk about the color palette and the way the film just sort of works, the, the visual of, of the film. Um, it, it is really, uh, it is uniquely French, I think. It really, um, it, it really speaks to the place that it comes from. What is, uh, what's your sense as you fall in love with this film as, as not just a, uh, you know, fiendish whimsy, but, but a foreign film? What is that, uh, what did that do for you? Um, kind of going forward, did you find yourself exploring other foreign films, other Genet films? What's uh, how did that work? That got me into um, Calvert, which uh, is uh, extremely dark, mm-hmm. um, and then it just went on from there. Um, and then, of course, I kept seeing some of the same French actors in different, you know, films. Um, I believe that uh, I can't say his name right, but it's uh, Dominic Pignon mm-hmm. was uh, uh, has been in other in other you know, um, other films. Uh, the last time I think I saw anything in, with him in it was uh, Alien Resurrection, which we won't talk about That's, that. But yeah, yeah it's, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, Andy's favorite. That. God, he loves that movie <laughs> so much. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it was, but it's also interesting to see also the uh, relationships between men and women in some of these, uh, you know, foreign films, how, you know, it's uh, women are treated. Um, as opposed to uh, in the U.S., where there would be a different dynamic between men and women. You know, an example being uh, that the the men are pretty handsy with, um, you know, personal space, like the postmaster with uh, or the postman with Julie being so forward with her in that regard. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't see that kind of, you know, being one of those things that would fly in an American film without some kind of repercussion. So, you know, it was just it was just interesting to see the dynamics between relationships, uh, you know, in, in those films as opposed to American films. Certain topics are uh, 
are are spoken about <clears throat> more freely there than it, they are here. Yeah, and I think that's one of those things that people always, you know, expect from foreign films, maybe, which, you know, the, there's that foreignness about them. They're like, oh, it's a French film, or it's an Italian film. We expect all that extra crazy uh, sex talk and uh, the handsiness of the people or whatever. And and it it's, I don't want to say it's like a, a, a free pass or anything, but it's it's definitely one of those things that can pop up in those films that we just kind of, okay, well, it's a foreign film. I'll just go with it. You know, and and uh, and that's also one of the interesting things about this film is it's, I mean, essentially about eating people, which is its own unique, uh, you know, storyline that, uh, you know, I don't know if that uh, came across like more acceptable to U.S. audiences because oh, it's just one of those crazy foreign films, or if it's a, um, if it's just you know because of the the comedy element as opposed. I mean, this could have been a, a horror film, really, with all this this eating of people and everything. But they really, it becomes this kind of this interesting post-apocalyptic uh, dark comedy, really. Um, but what's what's your sense on the uh, the the that element of it, kind of the eating of people, the dark the dark humor coming from that, rather than making it into a horror film? Oh no! I mean, I actually thought it was interesting that they even had a system on how to you know who to eat. Um, and it, the whole system actually, <clears throat> you know, was based on, you know, no one that actually lived in the building, um, you know, it must be a stranger, somebody who's passing by and won't be missed. Um, and yet, uh, you know, <clears throat> it was really instigated by obviously the butcher, but it was one of those things where nobody else, you know, actually stepped up and said there was, you know, this is wrong or, or anything like that. Um, if anything, they 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 saw it as you know yeah well this is what we have to do to survive, um, so it was interesting that you know they all uh, somehow against their own you know trying to resist it they all kind of fell in love with Luzon you know they didn't want to like him but because they knew that there was going to be an end to him at some point and uh, it ended up being the other way around. Delicious. <laughs> uh, well, this is a fantastic pick, and I am I'm. As I said, I'm just thrilled that you uh, that you dropped this on us because uh, it is a great addition, and I'm excited to do the whole show on it. So thank you, Cameron, for uh, for doing this and for being a part of uh, the next reel. Thank you so much, guys. Andy, I love this movie. I stink and love this movie. And you know what? I want to tell you something. Uh -oh. I've, I've been waiting for a long time to tell you this. You give me a lot of guff on this show. Every time we watch a so-called black comedy that I say I don't like, you say, well, maybe it's because it's a black comedy and you just don't understand the... <laughs> and I want you to know you're wrong about me because this is a black comedy and I love it. When have I ever said that? Every time. You just said it. You just said it. Uh, what... Just week two weeks ago, uh, we were doing the Lavender Hill Mob and lady the Lady Killers. Killers. We were doing the Lady Killers, and and I said I didn't like it because it wasn't black and it wasn't very funny. And you said, well, maybe because it's a black comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I it, it, and I think this this is a black comedy that gets it right, man. It's it's threatening and funny, and people eat people. <laughs> all of that all of that so so maybe they just needed to instead of the lady killers it should have been the lady uh eaters 
that would have see that would have upped the uh, upped the intensity, the stakes. There would have been some stakes, some literal literal stakes, <laughs> old lady stakes. <laughs> that could have been the other the the international title, old lady stakes. <laughs> uh, Grandma oh, tenderloin, <laughs> Baba T bone. Oh uh, man. Uh, I could go on all day. <laughs> yes, you probably shouldn't, though. <laughs> well, I I agree with you. I absolutely love this film. Ever since I first saw it, I, this was one of those uh, artsy films that just it never played in a theater near me, at, like at the main movie theaters. But I was in in college, and it played on campus. In kind of they they had the little art series of movies that would come through and play a couple different movies every week. And I remember seeing in the uh, ad for this one, uh, Terry Gilliam Presents. And I was like, oh, well, hey, if Terry Gilliam is is uh, uh, behind this one, then maybe I should go see it. And I went and saw it. And um, true to form, it very much is something that uh, would kind of jump out of Terry Gilliam's head. I think he was uh, right to kind of get behind this and uh, the City of Lost Children, their their follow-up to this, as and, and just kind of help them get a release over here in North America, as limited as it was, but it certainly is the thing that got me to go see it, and I instantly fell in love with it, and I've loved it ever since. Absolutely. I want to start... Boy, I, you know, you that Terry Gilliam connection is spot on. That is the first thing I thought, that this is Brazil with cannibalism, mm-hmm. um, and I just adore that mashup. The, uh, I want to start with the visual language of the film. Uh, this film is uh, was shot by uh, Darius Kanji. We've talked about uh, Kanji on the film before. When did we talk? We talked early on. We talked about Alien Resurrection. Uh, well, a number of David Fincher films. Too. A number of David Fincher films: Alien Resurrection, Panic Room, uh, Seven. Um, so we've it's been a while since we've talked about him. But um, can you reflect a little bit on how you would define the visual language of this film? It's uh, it, well, it's absolutely one where uh, they not just not just with the dp but also with the uh, the production uh, the production design team the color palette um it has a lot of the oranges and just kind of everything looks rusted and decayed and i think that was something that they all really wanted to go for in creating this film was to make something that looked very um uh, that did look decayed in, in this post-apocalyptic world. They wanted something that that had that feel. This is something where Darius Kanji uh, initially started looking into the bleach bypass process that became very big through him when he did it in Seven. Um, in the in the case for this film, it wasn't quite to the extent that they did in Seven. He only used about fifty percent of the bleach bypass. I think that they were afraid that it was taking too much of the color out. And so um, what they ended up doing when they designed the sets is actually they boosted the colors on the sets and then they did the bleach bypass, dropped it by 50%. So that kind of left some of that, uh, that color palette in there. And then they also did a, uh, they flashed the negative with a, uh, I believe it was a Vericon uh, machine that uh, Aeroflex makes. And what that does is that actually reduces the contrast slightly. And um, then they were also, when they were doing that, they were able to, put some different filters on it uh, that can help color the shadows of the negative. So they really, really worked hard to create this colorful world that was very muted and rusty feeling in order to really give us a sense of 
this this place and i mean we talk about it on the show all the time the sense of world building and how critical it is and when it works and when it doesn't this is a, a a wonderful example of a story we don't get a lot of the backstory we don't know what happened we don't know how this world ended up in this post apocalyptic place that it's in what we do know is that uh it has uh this backstory it has a sense of place within the story as far as the the troglodytes this underground group of rebels that are stealing food we know food is uh, there's a huge shortage on food and we really focus on this one building and their struggles to eat basically and to find food to survive and just through that limited bit of information within the context of the story and this amazing look that they've created we have a full-fledged world that is incredibly easy to buy into I absolutely agree, and I love that the um, you know the story of the troglodytes. They don't go into it all that much. Like you say, there's no real backstory, but it feels like a backstory because they play such a relevant uh, a relevant part in the A story of this film. Um, from the very first establishing shot that we get of the actual building, uh, the, this just sort of bombed out building, uh, um, we get a sense of the scope of the world that we're going to visit, and we don't ever get to go beyond that. Beside that, high, besides that high angle shot where we look down at, from the front door, uh, from right above the front door of the delicatessen onto the street, we just get probably what a, it looks like about a sixty foot area of of the street below, and that's all we that's all we get to explore of this of this world, and uh, and yet it still feels really. Uh, rich and and full uh, as a result of what goes on inside the building and underground. Yeah. I just I just love it. I am really uh, really enthralled by this film. I love what the uh, you know you define the color palette. I mean, really is it's like hyper monosaturated as a result of all the whiz bang technology they use to do it. It it this orange palette um, it it lends to that oppressiveness. But when it when you really notice it is in the very last shot of the film when. Um, when our two main characters are sitting on the roof playing their respective instruments and we finally get blue. Right. Blue sky finally comes in. And it's, it is shocking in such a simple, uh, sweet scene. It is visually jarring to see the blue as it enters this orange and the clouds part. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. And, and, and very fitting in, in the context of this film, uh, where it's so bleak for so much of it. And uh, I think at some point somebody says, oh, you know, I, the winds are changing, something like that, which I think is very fitting for this stranger coming in who's going to you know, shake things up a little bit within this world. So the film, uh, you know, the setup of the film is uh, pretty straightforward. The, as you said, there's a shortage on food. Food has become, uh, meat in particular, has become a currency, and the butcher is um, the consummate sort of mob banker. And uh, in order to keep food flowing, he has an ad placed in uh, in a local circular at the post office, and it advertises for uh, self help or help around the house. He needs somebody to come and do uh, labor. He gives them a nice room. He feeds them, and uh, in exchange, they do labor in, uh, around this hotel. And the plot uh, of the borders and the mob butcher is that these people will come in and at night there will be some noise on the stairs and the lights go out and the butcher will kill the handyman 
and then butcher him up and serve him from his butcher shop to the people who live there. Is that about mm-hmm. cover it? Is that about cover it for you? That covers it. That's about what happens. Uh, and so, you know, we, we see the, the thrill is in, uh, you know, it opens uh, with a, uh, a, the escape uh, of a, a handyman, the attempted escape of one of the handymen. And this is a wonderful bit where he is taping trash to his body. He's trying to cover himself in trash and hide, disguise himself as trash and be thrown out as the trash people come by. Uh, and the, the, you know, when you look at the, the image that, I think a lot of people associate with this film of of the the lid opening and these eyes, these giant eyes with this big wide angle uh, peeking out from the. It's sort of the uh, the Oscar the Grouch look, you know, at the the trash can lid opens up and these eyes are peering out, and then the the butcher sees him, and uh, the maniacal grin happens, and this beautiful cleaver comes down, and and uh, that's how that introduces us to the credits. Yeah. In the opening scene of the film, it is a great way to open uh, and and set up the the mania of the butcher and the the joy that he gets in his uh, uh, in his job. Uh, the butcher is uh, played by Jean Claude Dreyfus, Clapé, and uh, I he's just a scary scary dude. We've seen him. We haven't talked about him before, I don't think, but he's in another one of my very favorites, nineteen ninety five City of Lost Children. Yeah. Another great movie. What'd you think of the butcher? Yeah, I think you're right. He's uh, very well cast. He's intimidating. You're, I, I think comparison to a mob boss is spot on. He very much feels that way, where he runs the roost here, and and he, yeah, I mean, he's the one who does the killing. He does the butchering. He gives everybody their food. They pay him in lentils or beans or corn or whatever it is that they scraped scraped by with, and. Yeah, I think there's something with uh, just his presence that is perfect for an antagonist. And he, over the course of the film, we see his intensity grow, even as he doesn't necessarily um, change. Right? There's no, there's no redemption in his character over the course of this film. No, but but his sense of the sort of magnification of his mania is fantastic to the very bitter end. And it is one of the best, uh, I, it, for me, it is one of the best, most memorable uh, deaths of the antagonist of <laughs> any film that I, I carry. It's easily in the top five deaths of the antagonist uh, series for me. Uh, yeah, that, it's, it is a pretty fantastic one with the Australian and everything. And just, yeah. What is the Australian? The Australian is this fantastic... I mean, it's almost straight out of crawl. It's like this this crazy <laughs> knife that uh, Louison, our protagonist, has. It's uh, it's like a, a one handle with three blades uh, protruding, and and you know he's he's a former circus performer, so he's just got this weird sense about him and, and strange things like this knife called the Australian, and he uses it to rescue. Um, this other woman's uh, panties from from a light post where they're hanging uh, after these kids who are trying to fish it up for their own enjoyment. They accidentally drop it and it lands on this uh, this light pole. He pulls out the Australian and throws it. And it's basically like a boomerang. It's this knife. It's a boomerang <laughs> yeah. that defies all laws of physics. Right. It, it, it would never work. But he throws it. It spins around and he co- it comes back and catches it. And, of course, it works well for him because he knows how to use it. But it doesn't work so well for our antagonist when he tries it. 
It does not. He tries it. He tries to throw it at our protagonist, and uh, it it barely, barely misses the protagonist. Then it boomerangs back and lands squarely uh, in uh, Jean Claude Dreyfus's uh, forehead. Yep. Ouch. And it embeds itself deep, deep, deep into his brain. But it does not kill him immediately, uh, and he is able to go ask all of his cronies. <laughs> do, I, <laughs> do I have something on my head? <laughs> it's just, I am, I am laughing out loud at that point. It's really uh, a great bit. Yeah, it uh, it just looks so painful. It really, really does. Looks, it, it is great. Um, okay, so let's talk then about our protagonist. Uh, he, we've yeah. seen him before. Uh, Dominique Pignon plays Louison, uh, and we have talked about him. Uh, we talked about him more than once. I think just Alien Resurrection, right? Yeah, I think unfortunately just uh, Alien Resurrection. We we should at one point do Amelie, but uh, haven't quite gotten there. We really should. The guy's got 153 credits to his work, most of them obviously very, very heavily French. But what a fantastic face. Yeah, he is... uh, The fact that he's a former circus performer works so well because his face is this strange... Uh, it, almost like this clay, malleable face that just kind of got squished down a little bit or something. There's something about it that just always... I find just so fascinating to watch. And uh, and he does, and actually he says that, you know, before this film, this was really his first opportunity to play like a love interest. Before this, it was always killers and things like that because he did have a much different look that normally people wouldn't cast as your protagonist. But I think there is something so uh, charming about his peculiarity and it works so well in context of him being a circus performer. And then he does these things like he pulls out these bubbles and does this little uh, dance with these bubbles with these kids. And, uh, you know, he is, you know, doing his little thing where he's practicing for another act and he's got the cleaver in his head and just everything that in playing the saw, I mean, come on, that's just one of the strangest instruments that somebody could, (laughs) could pull out and play. And, uh, and yet so beautiful. So beautiful, so charming. And it just, I mean, all of these things add up to uh, just element after element uh, reasons that you should just fall in love with this character. It really is. It's one of these things that, that I think what, what he does so well with this character uh, is, is provide us the love of contrast, right? And the, and I should say the, the writing credits on this film, obviously uh, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, Marc Caro, and, and Giles uh, Adrian um, are, get the writing credits on this film. The character is so brilliant for me because of the, uh, of the contrasts that we get, right? We get a saw, which is a, a violent instrument. It, it is an instrument designed to rip things apart. And yet for him, it is an instrument of the sweetest, most lilting sound that he plays expertly. Um, we get him, you know, his, his look is, is, a, a little odd. It looks very circusy, and yet he comes across as one of the sweetest, most gentle people. When when he uh, he's painting the ceiling, 
he he can't reach a certain spot on the ceiling, and so he takes off his suspenders, this these like old broken down bit of clothing, and he manages to turn them into a a sort of rubber band suspense uh, tool that allows him to bounce out and and get the the far reaches of the corner of the ceiling. It, it is this that exercise in contrast. You already brought up the cleaver in the head bit as he's trying to to work on a new act, even as the world has fallen down around his ears. He is still working on a new act of of charm and cleverness for the circus um, because there is, in the face of catastrophe, hope in this odd little man. And I find that so endearing. And I think in this film, it fills such a great hole with such light. Yeah, it really. I think you're you're right. The whole idea of the contrast in this film really does play uh, right from the beginning. Really, I mean, it's a it's an interesting world that we're introduced to. That is very. Uh, everything does seem kind of backwards, and it's like if you're looking at ups and downs and heavens and hells, and all of that sort of stuff. You've got the good guys living underground and the bad guys living above ground. You've got, uh, when he goes in and to his room the first time and turns on one tap, it turns on the other spigot, and then he turns on that tap, and it turns on the first spigot. So everything is kind of backward. And so the fact that this is this this stranger from the outside that comes in and uh, into this dark, hellish world and is able to bring so much light, um, I think that he is the perfect casting choice and just a brilliantly written character to do that for this story. You know, I, you bring that up, uh, the, uh, the guy living in the basement uh, with the snails and frogs. Oh, yes. Uh, I, 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 maybe I missed it. I don't have a real sense of his uh, role apart from, you know, being just another character in the place. But uh, speaking of contrasts, again, the world is falling down around their ears. And here is a guy who feasts on one of the, you know, I should say now stereotypically quintessential delicacies of France every day. Uh, you know, snails, right? He's snails eating escargot, frogs. snails and frogs, <laughs> and uh, and he's doing so in in a disgusting, just filthy, awful environment. But it is, you know, that contrast again is like, look at this guy. He's he is living in um, absolute uh, uh, ecstasy, culinary ecstasy. Um, which I, I think is really brilliant. And back to, to Darius Kanji, I mean, what other filmmaker do you, or what other just sort of a cinematography, do you, a cinematographer do you know that could expertly do a low angle on a frog? I mean, that is one of the things I love so much about this film, the low and high angles that he uses so often in just his placement and movement of the camera. And they play with the stairs and they play with the, you know, the, the, the lights and, and then they get down into this basement, and he actually is able to make us feel like we are beneath a frog. And I think that is so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, it's skill that man has. Mad yeah. cinematographic skill. I like it when you say cinematographic. Right? <laughs> uh, Julie Clapet is the uh, daughter of uh, Clapet, the butcher, uh, played by Marie-Laure Dunac. Yeah, Dunac or something. Dunac. My French is terrible. <laughs> so is mine. She is uh, she is lovely. She has not been in all that much, but my goodness, she is a sweet, sweet love interest. She really is. She's very easy to fall in love with. She's kind of that uh, that quirky, um, uh, nerdy girl that you just kind of easily fall in love with in these sorts of movies. You know, they they take off their glasses and they're a beauty. 
<laughs> it's a little bit stereotypical, but uh, but she does it very well. But at least she can't see when she takes off her glasses. That's true. You know? like, there again, with another contrast. Uh, yes, indeed. Apparently, she is very big at um, at uh, specializing in the dubbing of English films into French. So she's actually played uh, uh, Joy Lauren, Lauren Adams in Big Daddy. She did Heather Graham in Killing Me Softly. She did... Uh, she played Liv Tyler as Arwen in Lord of the Rings and in The Incredible Hulk when she was Betty Ross. She's just somebody who specializes in doing that for a lot of these uh, uh, films that end up playing over there in France. So that's kind of a, a funny little thing to do. That's funny. Now that I think about it, she's got a very nice voice. She does. It would work very well as Arwen. Um, she is. Uh, she ends up taking on a bit of the hero role as she goes down to... She knows that the plot is happening. Uh, and uh, of of her father's to to kill the handyman who she has fallen in love with, who she has fallen in love with, and she takes it upon herself to uh, initiate a rescue attempt. And so, she leaves the building late one night, and she scurries down uh, through the manhole cover in the street into the depths of the sewers of France, and introduces us to the troglodytes. Now, who are the troglodytes, Sandy? It's just like this interesting little, like you know, rebel movement. Uh, this insurrectionist group that lives under the uh, the the streets, and I don't really know a whole lot of what they do, but they obviously are causing problems. They, uh, I, I think, people feel like these guys come up and and attack people and eat people, and they're all wary of these guys now. Um, but these guys, I think, are also just this this rebel movement. I mean, I guess you could say they're just kind of criminals because really what they're trying to do is find food and forage like everybody else. And and they set up this deal with uh, Julie to steal all of this uh, corn and uh, lentils and stuff from her father, the butcher, um, in exchange for them rescuing uh, Louison from their from her father's clutches. Which I and that's another relationship that I love because we have, um, you know, we have these troglodytes who are, uh, you know, they live underground. But when we finally see them, they've been set up as terrorists. You right, know, the press, right. all the articles in the press sets them up as terrorists that they come up, they kidnap and eat people. But it turns out when we hear their story, they're the ones that are afraid of being taken and eaten by the butcher. Right. Uh, and uh, and so it makes for a, a nice uh, partnership between Julie and the trogs. As they initiate their rescue. And again, going back to world building, the fact that all of these guys uh, have these costumes, I guess, fitting for people who essentially are living in the sewers, they look like, um, you know, just really intense uh, rain slickers is what they're wearing. You know, they've got all of this, this like heavy rubber rain gear on and it's not quite scuba diving sort of clothing, but it, it definitely is kind of just that, that rubber stuff to just keep them dry. And they've got the little hoods on and the funny goggles and everything. They really do. Um, uh, the filmmakers really worked to create a really unique look for the troglodytes. So in a sense, they almost look like strange monsters. They do. They do. Well, again, this goes straight to the Terry Gilliam connection. I mean, this is where, I mean, for me, they're all Robert De Niro's living underground. Exactly. And I, I knowing that Brazil was a big inspiration for these guys, it's completely fitting because, uh, yeah, because the whole, uh, the idea of these terrorists who aren't really terrorists, 
Um, but in these funny outfits, completely harkens back to Robert De Niro in that film. Upstairs, we have the the family um, that that lives up there. This is the uh, who is it? The tapioca family. Yeah, Tiki Ogato is the dad. Tiki Ogato and Emery Pisani. Yeah, and then the grandmother and, Edith Kerr, which I there's this is a, a, a great film where uh, like Sergio Leone, who also was a big influence, somebody who could cast amazing faces and just found beautiful um faces that just these wonderful landscapes um of of people's faces to to put in front of the camera. These guys worked really hard to just find amazing faces all through the story to put in here. Grandmother's face, even though she doesn't really say anything, although she's got a great scream. Um, another wonderful character that is just thrown in there. And then uh, Tiki Olgado and his wife are just a, a great pair as they're always struggling to uh, <laughs> to get uh, you know get their children fed. And uh, the fact that you know he's got this one condom that they have been <laughs> keep using time and time again that he's patching with his his bike bike patches <laughs> i mean it is just that's priceless sort of humor really you, is. you know what i you know what i love about their function in the film too yeah we we see a number of other characters right we see uh the uh, the guys who are making the little man boxes whatever the little those cow, are the, cow, the little cow the yeah. makers yeah, yeah. Right, the cow noisemakers. We see even the the tapioca kids. Uh, we see you know we see a number of these characters in the film, and uh, all of them have their own sort of function. But the tapioca family serves to demonstrate for us the level of hunger. They're like the hunger barometer. Right. Right. And and I think that ends up being really really useful, um, as we see, because they allow us to see how desperate everybody should be in this building. The hungrier they get, the the crazier the butcher gets, the crazier his sort of gang of thugs gets as they uh, as they try to uh, to finally entrap the the handyman. And so crazy, in fact, that that uh, Tiki Elgato. Uh, actually stages the the scene so that the butcher can capture um, the grandmother and and they end up serving her um, along with the leg of one of the little sound guy makers um, yeah Rufus uh, Rufus's leg uh, as he tries to rescue her so um, you know it ends up being I think a really useful function in the film to give us a sense of where we should how we should how hungry we should be feeling. Yeah, very true. Uh, it, that's a that's a, a good point brought up because, I mean, I will say the butcher. There is this point where the butcher seems a little more content than he has been in the past with letting this this handyman stick around a little bit longer because people keep asking why is this guy been it's been over a week why is he still here we need to you know get get moving here but he's just like oh no he still needs to finish the ceilings and all this stuff and he seems for for whatever reason a little more inclined to let this one get a little more work done and stick around and live a little longer but it's at that point when when uh uh yeah Marcel and uh, the head of the tapioca family is finally like look we've got uh, we're starving here let's let's get a move on uh that things get rolling again so it is a very key uh key uh, point in the film and it also allows us to see that they're willing to break their own rules right they have rules around who is going to live and and the tenants in the building they're the ones that get to live uh the ones who have been there all along uh, but here we see that that they have gotten so desperate 
that they're willing to sacrifice one of their own, which changes the the nature of of the rule set in the house yeah. in the building. That's a great little yeah. bit when um, uh, Marcel's wife is just like, "I didn't even get to say goodbye," and he's like, "Well, let's go do that now." As they walk out, holding a you know a flank of steak <laughs> wrapped in paper yeah. of her <laughs> to go up to their room and it's eat. So dark. <laughs> And and I'm you know what is your sense when Roger and Rufus are talking you know we just discover that that Rufus had his leg cut off in the rescue attempt and he's describing he says oh yeah he was so he was so kind the butcher he, you know he he was so nice to me as he took my leg uh, and uh, and Roger like tosses him a wrapped package of meat saying here you go I mean do you think he's eat, he's saying we're gonna eat you we're gonna eat your leg now or was that part of grandma like oh, it's I don't so know. dark it is so dark at that point you know I, I don't think these guys can even really judge about that because it's just yeah. all so wrong and as far as we know I mean we know we don't actually see Rufus eat again uh he's he gets pretty depressed he does get pretty depressed yeah, he's pretty grim his... Uh, he is in love. Yeah. <laughs> with Aurore. Aurore Intelligator. And she, uh, played by Sylvie Laguna, she's hysterical. The Just the, the brilliance of uh, coming up with this strange... I, I don't know what was uh, Roger, what he was thinking, because uh, it's revealed later that he has been whispering into the pipes trying to convince Aurore to kill herself. And I think it's because... Uh, Roger knew that his brother, Robert, was in love with her, and I, I don't know if he felt that he was going to leave if, if uh, you know, or if, uh, if it was just going to go down a, a direction that it shouldn't or what, but he was trying to convince Aurora to kill herself. And the scheme, and so she thinks that these these ghosts are talking to her, and and the schemes that she comes up with to kill herself are so funny. It's just these strange Rube Goldberg uh, suicide attempts that never end up working out. But uh, my goodness, they're all just so funny. They are wonderful, particularly the last one. All of them have the ability to kill. Like she has all the tools to kill herself instantly. Like she doesn't need to go through the Rube Goldian, uh, Rube Goldbergian yeah. uh, mechanics to actually make this work. But the last one I think is the most blatant as she has a gun, a, a shotgun uh, angled on a chair pointing at her head. Uh, the shotgun is tied to uh, some other contractions. She has uh, a noose around her neck and she's standing on a chair and she's got the gas on and the oven open and uh <laughs> The can and she's and all of these things happen and and a full bottle of pills and a glass of water and she's standing there waiting for for, for her you know, husband she, to open the for door. her husband to open the door right uh, and everything goes wrong and you think how is it possible that all of these backup attempts to kill her would go, fail at the same time the shotgun goes off it shoots the rope of the noose she falls over she closes the the oven she the pills she puts in her mouth but as she falls they jolt and all the pills fall out of her mouth I mean everything she, yeah. fails. It is. It is uh, really. I mean, talk about uh, black. That's the that is, she is one of the great sources of the black comedy part of this of this black film. That she is. She makes suicide laugh out loud hysterically funny. It is a riot, and and then of course, in the end, it does succeed because when her husband turns the light switch on, it sparks, and all the gas in the room all the gas blows up that entire floor of the complex, killing them both. Which which uh, sort of starts the, or, or I say, I should say, accelerates the uh, the toward the climax of the film. At this point, the butcher has gone bananas, uh, and uh, it's all it's all out. 
that he's going to kill the handyman. The handyman knows that they're fighting on the roof, and we have the big uh, we have the big standoff. Yeah, yeah. As the troglodytes uh, attempt to kidnap uh, Louison and save him down in the sewer, but they end up kidnapping the butcher's girlfriend instead. Yeah, Mademoiselle Plus. We get a little bit of mistaken identity action. And, uh, and there you go. And then you get an underwater kiss too, also because of the uh, oh, the flooding sweet. of the of the room, which was, you uh, know, I have to say the strangest. Talk about that, yeah. The strangest way to try to escape when people are pursuing you, and they they go, oh, I know what I'll do. They they end up hiding in the bathroom, and the only way out is the one door. And so what what he comes up with is this: let's flood the bathroom, fill it all the way up, so that when they burst through. Um, we, you know, all the water will wash out and we'll be able to, to get out. And I guess it does work, but luckily the, the, they opened the door because I mean, they pretty much almost drowned in this room, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it just, again, speaks to kind of the peculiar way that people think in this world and just the, um, the, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very, in a, in a weird way fits within kind of that Rube Goldberg-esque types of suicide attempts that uh, Aurora was trying to do because this is a, a very odd way to escape this room when people are at the door, although it's effective. Absolutely. And and it ends up, you know, providing the set for the final standoff. You know, we've already talked about the death of, a, of the butcher, but one of the things that was the result of filling the room with water is that the floor gives out in the bathroom. And one, what we end up with is Three of the of the ruffians, the butcher and his and two of his hench people, uh, on the ground in the floor below, and we have uh, Julie and Louison up above, perched on the edge of the bathroom wall, sort of on the toilet and on the edge of the wall. And it makes for one of the most interesting compositions, I think, in the film. In a film full of interesting compositions, is we have these five people on screen, and uh, they fit so perfectly in this in this shell of a of a, an apartment complex it's just a really interesting set for the final standoff it's it, it yeah you're right it works very well in context of this crazy world that they've created where everything really is completely falling apart now and it's just this this very big mess that's going on um that uh yeah it just it fits very well within the context of the of the story here absolutely uh, who else excites you in this film? Anybody else you want to? Um... Well, I, I mean, the 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 talent they're all great. I think everyone is perfect um, in their roles. The um, the postman, I got to say, he is one serious spitter. He's he hawks a loogie at that <laughs> at that picture and just shatters the glass. <laughs> that, was this, that was so strange. Weird. Yep. Um, but I mean, they, they, I think they're all great. They all work really well. But the only other one I was going to point out was that uh, Mark Caro, one of the two directors, actually appears as one of the the troglodytes. Yes, he does. As uh, who is he? He's Fox. Fox yeah. So uh, I have a hard yeah. time keeping all of them straight as to who is who. They just kind of all the, become the troglodytes. But uh, yeah, the only one I think we hear by name right is uh, Tourneur. The one who shot. The one who's dead. Shot dead. Yeah. 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 No, they introduce uh, themselves. They they go through that whole thing. Where oh, they all, you're right. They all introduce themselves, but they say it so quick, and they're all dressed the same. I just can't remember which one's which. Yeah. No, you're right. That's a good point. 
it is uh, overall it's fantastic. You know, one of the things that was interesting, you, you know, we uh, in our conversation uh, with Cameron, you know, she mentions the the relationship between men and women in this film and and um, sort of on display in the sort of French. Um, French cultural uh, norm uh, that's on display in post-apocalyptic uh, delicatessen. Uh, what's your What's your thought on that? We have two sequences that I think are particularly important. One is the is is the musical sex scene, uh, which I, I think is just a, a sort of nice frivolous display of sex um, that ends up not being particularly offensive. But then we have the the physicality between the um, you know julie and a couple of different men in her life yeah it is pretty interesting i mean it it uh uh i don't know if it uh it, you know i don't know what they're uh if they were trying to say anything big or anything but definitely the uh as cameron pointed out the the postman certainly is a little more handsy with uh with julie than uh than you know a lot of people may be there's he certainly seems to have that sense of ownership about her that I, I, you know I don't know there's there's almost a sense of that kind of uh, you know those those relationships in films from the from like the the 40s and 50s kind of the crime thrillers where you have those characters who who tend to feel a little bit more like they own the women the postman certainly plays that way um, and then of course there's the the relationship with between her and her father who she clearly uh doesn't like very much but she hits this point where uh, because he's not going to uh stop his pursuit to kill Louison um she uh tells him she hates him he slaps her which is i think a, a very strong moment that apparently was uh, kind of a an improvised bit that they kind of talked to Jean-Claude Dreyfus about uh doing and nobody else knew um, that that was going to happen. Certainly not uh, Marie Lore uh, when uh, that happened. So that's a completely genuine reaction. It's but it's painful to watch, and it's just coming from the antagonist. I guess you could say it's just one more reason to hate him. But it certainly feels very, uh, very dark and frightening in this world. Uh, that you know already is kind of a, a you know pretty scary world. But these are moments that are just genuine human moments that just feel very uncomfortable. That that I think is I'm, I, that's the the moment I was thinking of too. That that it is it ends up being one of the most uh, terrifying moments in a in a film about terrifying moments, just because it is human. Uh, it it's the one that uh, that that brings us back to sort of our reality. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any other uh, any other functions you want to talk about before we uh, dive into how it did? Well, you did you did mention the uh, the wonderful bit on the bed, and I just have to say uh, that is uh, well, I mean, geez, the trailer when they did release it over here was that scene basically. I mean, that's all they basically played, which I think was very funny and also spoke to well, one a sense of um, a foreign film speaking to a foreign audience. It's very easy to enjoy. Uh, just a, a fantastic sequence like that. You don't have any language. You don't have to understand what it is that uh, there's no words being spoken. It's just this this beautiful rhythmic scene of how everybody kind of comes together between the uh, the sex and the uh, the painting and the knitting and the uh, pumping of the bike tires and the making of these little uh, cow toys, uh, the rug beating, cello practice. Everything just comes together so beautifully to to just kind of create the flow of that sequence. It's so wonderful. And then I think the uh, the follow up to that, 
which I think could have turned a little more um, a little more uh, lascivious, but doesn't, is when Louison is asked by uh, the mistress to go uh, fix her squeaky springs. And he goes in there, and you've got this beautiful, it's almost like a dance as this kind of like Hawaiian luau music is playing on the TV. And the two of them are just kind of doing this little bobbing dance as as they move just back and forth on the bed, trying to figure out where the squeak is coming from. I uh, I mean that just that just you know is such a beautiful moment. I have such a joy watching that moment, and it uh, is a great way to kind of take all that um, that lewd uh, kind of grimy butcher sex out of that uh, out of that bed and turn it into something beautiful, which I thought was great. It's really charming, but so much of that charm comes from uh, you know Louison Dominique Pignon's face. Mm-hmm. in that sequence his curiosity around really uncovering the squeak the source of the squeak uh, and that discomfort that sort of awkward discomfort that he brings to that sequence is i think really really great that was the one when i first saw this film and i had some buddies in high school we all saw this film and and it, it was the one where we we would sort of bounce together you know we, anytime we found ourselves sitting on someone else's bed we would start <laughs> bouncing like that and kind of leaning to one side right right <laughs> because we were so funny you guys were awesome oh funny good stuff uh and then the last little bit i was going to say is uh the magic of the opening credits this is something that uh uh, junet certainly has uh continued a few more times like in amelie just this beautiful way that they did the opening credits where everybody's credit was on a prop in this in this room and just kind of and it all kind of fit within the context of who uh, their department and what they did which i always found so magical and i guess they used a a motion control camera to kind of move through this elaborate setup of all these props in this uh in this location as they kind of went through found the name went on to the next one found the name uh i just i found that just just magical to watch and I, I don't know if I don't know how true it is, but uh, I did hear that this was one of the first uses of uh, motion control like that. So, how did uh, how this one do? Um, this film did uh, pretty well for itself. I couldn't find. Um, well, I did find what it cost uh, budget wise in euros. I have no idea how that kind of correlates. Uh, I don't know if these euros are uh, have been modified or anything so i didn't put them into our chart but i did find that it cost 3.8 million euros to make and the european box office for it was 13.7 million euros so it it did really well for itself over there in in europe over here in the states um it ended up making one point almost uh, 1.8 million dollars uh adjusted that would be uh, well, it's not a huge change, about almost $3 million domestically. So it's not a ton of money. It was a very kind of a quirky little uh, little independent foreign film. And uh, I think that it uh, certainly found its mark here. It made its money back. And uh, I'm certainly glad that uh, that I got to enjoy it. And it did well for itself in the award circuit, too. The, the César Awards over in France, kind of our, their Oscars. It won Best Editing, Best Film Work, Best Production Design, Best Writing. And so, um, yeah, I think it was a it was a nice surprise for the French who weren't used to this sort of film. I say we rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you can check out our list of our favorite films and uh, well, all our films. You can see how we did, how we ranked them and uh, see if our favorite uh, stack lacks, lines up with your fa- lacks up. <laughs> 
That's what happens when we record in the morning. I'm just not quite ready for that. My mouth is not ready for the day. Coffee, uh, coffee, more coffee. See if, see if your favorite films line up with our favorite films. And uh, let's see. What do you think? I feel pretty good about this one. I do too. I, I would say let's see if it ends up in the... Gosh, you think it could go for the top 20? I was going to say top 20. Let's, let's do top out. 20. All right. Uh, all right. First up, Delicatessen or Kind Hearts and Coronets? Oh, Delicatessen. Yes. We love you, Alec Guinness, but Delicatessen. Ooh, Delicatessen or 12 Monkeys? Delicatessen for me. I actually think I would agree with you on that one. Delicatessen or The World's End? I think I'm still Delicatessen, though. I think I am, too, but it's getting more difficult. It is getting really tough here. Oh, Delicatessen or Brazil? See, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it. And you know what? I'm going to say delicatessen. I know. And I'm going to say Brazil. Oh. I know. I know. On a one to, one to ten, where are you for Brazil? Like one being Brazil, ten being I'm on a one. Man. Okay. I'm going to give it to you because I'm about an eight. Okay. All right. Delicatessen or up in the air? Delicatessen. I, yeah, Delicatessen, I think so. Delicatessen or Time Bandits? Delicatessen. I think of Delicatessen here, yeah. Delicatessen or Brazil again? No, back to Brazil. I guess it's a... Uh, how do we do that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, sometimes if you... Uh, um, depending on you know the, the number of films in there, it'll end up oh. back at the same film. Well, I give it the same. Well, there we are. Number 13. Out of 171. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it just kind of jumped right up there. That is great. Feels really good. It feels good. I feel good about What that. a treat. I am so glad. And how we could have a movie that would sneak up to number 13 and have never... I don't think either of us have ever thought to put Delicatessen on our list of films. I think going into our planning all the way out to 2020, I don't think Delicatessen's on there. It hasn't been, which is a shame. So thank you, Cameron Ryan, for making us talk about it because we certainly uh, certainly enjoyed it awesome movie i'm so glad it's on the list andy where do we go from here this was a nice little break after alec guinness but we start a new thing we're going to do a mystery series pete this is uh <gasps> this is going to be kind of a, a fun little game for us and for our listeners Oh, I like this. Tell me more. Well, we're going to talk about four films, and there is a common thread between all four of them. And, uh, well, there may be more than one common thread, but there's one specific common thread that we are, uh, that we are thinking of. And what we're going to do, <laughs> week four, when, we have, uh, when that fourth episode goes out, we're going to allow people to, uh, to comment on Facebook or Twitter and uh, try to guess what uh, what the thread is. And the first person who gets it is going to win a fantastic shirt. Oh, how nice. More shirts. Yeah, it'll be kind of the, the last uh, last of the shirts because those are kind of a... That's it. They're done. Yeah, they're... Well, this uh, this is very exciting. I'm... I, and, and to be clear, it is, it is the thing, as Andy said, the thing we're thinking of. You can't just make up a thing. Can't come up with a different thing you got to guess the thing we're thinking of. Yeah, I should say, we think there's only one connection between all four of these films. <laughs> that's what we're going for. If you come up with something else, that's great. Pat on the back. But the one thing that we're thinking of is what you have to guess. <laughs> excellent. Excellent, excellent. Well, I'm pretty excited about this one. I This is... Uh... 
This is going to be a fun one. Yeah, it'll be Can't fun. See what We're going to have to uh, really kind of jump in and think about this. Rather than, you know, like we do every week, just, <laughs> just <laughs> throw, throw crap on the wall. <laughs> hey, it's worked for three years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my man, I got to go get some coffee. All right, I got to go get some steak. Mine is a two-star, and I'm only doing... I'm doing it just as a representative sample. This is the newest review for this film on Amazon, and it continues our thread of really insightful uh, Amazon reviews. And I think it captures the truth of the film, uh, although I'm not sure that the description of the, the actual review lines up with the star rating, but I would agree with this review. It is from Donna, from... Two days ago. Weird and gross. Man. And that is all. And I agree with both of those things, although I would put many more stars after it. <laughs> I think she uses the same editor that uh, <laughs> the other series. Person, yeah. Oh. So I'm cheating. I'm doing two reviews. The first one. Is, and I'm just doing this because it's just so silly. It's by Paul A. Geertsen, who says, Please delete my review. I did not like this movie and changed my mind about providing a review. How do I delete it? <laughs> you just don't start writing a review. You don't, you don't start writing, yeah. Like, you, keep, you stop writing. Stop right now. But just the, stop typing. But the other one is a one star by Doctor Who, What, Where, Cardinal Bound, Free of the Mountains. I just, you know, you got to <laughs> go for somebody who puts that into giving their name. Uh, what, what to abstract for this man's tastes. Based on the reviews, this would be a funny movie that involved some degree of cannibalism. However, it turns out that the premise, the topic, could provide some dark humor was wrong. Any probability for humor was obscured in the movie itself. This resulted from the fact that the movie tried too hard to be smart and cutting edge. It failed with the result something I just could not even watch for more than a few minutes. Yellow light bathing everything. No thank you. Meat-colored walls? Again, no thanks. Plain boring story and too ambitious a concept? Not interested. I would argue that it is too abstract to enjoy unless one is as that high an opinion of themselves. However, that might just be me. Oh, it might. It just might, Doctor Who, what we're cardinal bound free of the mountains. It just might. (laughs) (laughs) Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. 
Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 